Welcome to a History of Submarines podcast. Episode 1, Submersibles, the First Submarines. Hi, dear listener, nice to meet you. My name is Kai Leers, a Dutchman living in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, and you're listening to the first episode of the uh, History of Submarines podcast. In this all-new series, we'll dive deep into the sometimes murky waters of submarine invention, because who in his right mind would decide to allow himself to sink in deep waters in some wooden or metal contraption, not knowing for sure if he'd ever service again? But some adventurous inventors did. Lured by the promise of going beyond yet another frontier, or because of love for the fatherland and war, or to simply make money, men, as far as we know, submarine designers and inventors were always men, I, you know, it can't really be helped, dreamed up oftentimes fantastical ways to submerge, discover the underwater world, and surface. I call this podcast A History of Submarines because, depending on the sources researched, one could very well write different history books with different takes on the matter. It's not always easy piecing together the proper pieces. Like with so many histories of so many subjects, there are rabbit holes of plenty to get lost in. One reason why it's not always easy to piece submarine history together is that success has many fathers, while failure is an orphan. Another reason is that historians rely on written records. Oh, and this podcast is a general development throughout history, how the submarine came into its own, and how it was human ingenuity that allows people to defy laws of nature, such as water pressure, safe underwater propulsion, and the limits of contained oxygen. This means that this pod won't dive too deep in the technical ins and outs. Sorry about that, I'm a lover of history, not an engineer. Perhaps later on I'll invite true engineers who actually know everything about the nuts and bolts of diesel engines, batteries, and nuclear reactors, one of those two supplementals and interviews and whatnot. This episode is called Submersibles, the First Submarines. Submersibles because we're not yet talking about boats that would remain submerged and only surface every now and then. Instead, we'll be talking about boats that stayed on the surface most of the time and only submerged for short periods of time. In fact, it won't be until the advent of the German Type 21 submarine late in World War II that we encounter the first true submarine, i.e. a boat that stays below water for most of the time and services only momentarily. Nonetheless, I'm calling this podcast A History of Submarines because, well, that's what we picture for ourselves when we say submarine, right? So, let us begin. The history of people seeking to submerge go back to antiquity, hundreds of years before Christ in the Western calendar. As is so often the case, stories turn to legends and legends turn to myths. The further back we go into the mists of history, the more unreliable the sourcing becomes, the perennial problem of historiographers. We are often left with just one source to rely on, and as any historiographer will tell you, one source is no source. And as the great wizard Gandalf said in The Hobbit, every good story needs a little embellishment. So, one story almost by definition isn't enough to be treated as a reliable source. As we will see in the second episode, The Golden Age of Submarine Invention, 
True successes were few, while failures were common. Inventors and adventurers would sooner forget about their failures and quash dreams and move on, rather to be reminded of them or their debtors. Usually, inventors lost a lot of money, something else they'd rather forget. Unfortunately, quite a lot of written evidence from submarine inventors, designers, and builders has been lost. Many inventors never kept a diary, and if they did, their design failed, they fed the diary to a fire or threw it away. Or, as was often the case, they simply didn't live to tell the tale. Many inventors drowned in their ill-conceived contraptions. And so we are dependent on, say, the few successful inventors who did keep their diaries. Witnesses, like co-workers, civil servants keeping close tabs on government expenditure on experimental submarine designs and tenders, or inventors simply stuffing their diaries in a book closet, only to have their spouses discover the diaries years after their passing. And, of course, you mustn't forget that inventors are wont to guard their secrets. In this first episode, for instance, we'll talk about the famous Dutchman and main protagonist of submarine invention, Cornelis Drebbel, who was the first to not only engineer a working submersible craft, but who apparently also discovered a chemical way to recycle or produce oxygen. We're not sure which of the two it was, because Drebbel took a secret with him into the grave, possibly afraid that others might copy his inventions. Another episode tells the tale of how no one knew that a certain man had designed and built a submarine with which he almost sank a warship, until Samuel Colt, yes, he of the famous revolver, drew the submarine's design on a napkin some 20 years later and told the story about the ill-fated inventor. Yet another tale describes how a man of whom it was thought that he only built one experimental submersible turns out to have built four. And quite advanced ones at that, actually, including one with a working air scrubber, which allows oxygen to be recycled years ahead of its time. We know this because an evidently quite nervous newspaper reporter was taken down for a spin in the inventor's fourth and last submersible and wrote an article about it in the New York Times, which we can still read today in the newspaper's online archive. But then, sadly, with the demise of the inventor, his story disappeared into the ocean like a castle made of sand. All this also means that their successors were left only with the general ideas of their predecessors. There was no compendium of sorts of technical designs that one could read in a library and then work from that. So what we will see quite often in these first episodes of A History of Submarines is inventors quote-unquote reinventing works of their predecessors. Unfortunately, that also means that later inventors repeated often fatal mistakes. Having said all that, let's get to it and dive into a history of submarines, starting with the age of the first submersibles. The first stories, legends, and myths about men going underwater using devices to stay there for a prolonged time come to us from Greek figures like Aristotle and Herodotus. Diving for commercial reasons was quite common throughout the world, going back thousands of years. Sponge divers and, in Asia, oyster divers would perilously sink themselves many meters below sea level to bring the sea's treasures above water and sell them on the shore. The first story, or legend or myth, about a man who used to cover up the sea to bring harm to service vessels is that of the Greek Scylla. Together with his daughter Chiana, some 500 years before Christ, he was a well-known diver in Greek waters, searching for treasures in sunken ships. He was so good at this trade that the Persian king Xerxes pushed Scylla into his service. 
Herodotus wrote that Scyldia managed to free himself and some years later went underwater, using a reed stick from the water for air and cut the moorings of Persian ships, breaking a blockade during one of the many Persian-Greek wars. As we shall see throughout history of submarines, blockades are one of the main drivers pushing the development of underwater warfare. It is believed that Alexander the Great was the first to face organized military underwater attack when he laid siege to the Phoenician city-state of Tyre on the coast of present-day Lebanon in the year 332 before Christ. Legend has it that divers cut the moorings of his ships that were enforcing a naval blockade of the harbor while also sabotaging a breakwater in an attempt to free the Phoenician fleet that was bottled up inside the harbor. Aristotle describes how the Phoenician divers used a tube of sorts extending to the surface like, quote, the trunk of an elephant, unquote, to remain underwater for extended periods. Then, in 196 AD, divers from the then Roman Byzantium, present-day Istanbul, are said to have also mimicked Scylla's feet by cutting the moorings of ships belonging to Severus Septimus during one of the many Roman civil wars. But the divers are said to have done more than just cut cables. They allegedly also pulled the ships towards the shallow coast, grounding them by simply pulling them along, walking on the seabed. Then there are numerous stories throughout antiquity and early medieval times of divers using diving helmets with tubes running from them with the end kept afloat with a small block of wood, using augers to drill holes in the wooden ships of their enemies. Roger Bacon, the famed friar philosopher, described a respiratory device much like these diving helmets around the year 1270. As more inventors, proto-historians, and monks put their world into writing, more sources become available to us, telling the tale of underwater adventures using all kinds of respiratory devices. The first drawings of these devices also start showing up, from bronze diving helmets called kettle hats to contraptions made of leather. And although we can't be completely sure that these were just mere representations of the imagination or the real thing, some records clearly show that some of these methods were indeed used on and off to try and damage or sink enemy ships. Now, these were all divers. Throughout antiquity and medieval history, there were some who mused about how people could theoretically also build a submersible device. People like Roberto Valturio... For instance, in 1472, the Italian published a treatise on military machines and tactics called De Re Militari, or On the Military Arts. It was the second illustrated book to ever be printed in the Italian-speaking lands at the time. And this is where things get going, because now knowledge about how to build submersibles starts to spread, and we will see others start to work from designs and ideas conceived by predecessors. And among the many machines Vatturio describes in his treatise is a cigar-shaped submersible. It is suspected that Leonardo da Vinci, that great inventor, philosopher, painter, and generally just all-around super-clever man with a brilliant imagination, read Vatturio's treatise and worked from there. Da Vinci sketched something that looked like a submersible in the year 1515, a submersible that was to be operated by a diver. He describes the apparatus but keeps many technical details secret as, so he writes, he fears the evil nature of man and is afraid it could be used to kill other people or themselves. Well, he certainly got that part right. But the first description of a submersible that looks like our modern idea of such a craft is found in the work Inventions or Devices, published in 1578 by William Bourne.
Born was a man of many trades. He was a mathematician and a legal advisor, but before that he was a gunner in the English Royal Navy under Admiral Sir William Monson. In one of his many naval tracts, Monson had described a kind of underwater cannon that would be brought to bear in some kind of submerged boat. It is unknown to what extent Bourne knew of his former admiral's ideas, but either way, Bourne is credited with drawing up the design of something that looked like a submersible rowboat. Covered with a leather deck and a long tube protruding from it above sea level for air, it was an early kind of snorkel. Bourne proposed propulsion by oars. This concept was not new in itself. Throughout the Middle Ages, some thinkers had proposed simply using oars, like men in a rowboat. What was new was that Bourne had thought about how such a boat could safely take on water so as to make it sink, and then export the water again to make it surface. He basically invented proto-ballast tanks. These were on the sides of the boat and were to be big leather bellows with screws. The bellows would suck in water to submerge and, using the screws, the crew would push the water out the bellows again, making the submarine rise. Bourne's design would remain just that, a theoretical design. It would take a brilliant Dutchman from the town of Alkmaar, the Netherlands, to design and construct the first true and working submersible. And it might well be that Drebbel read Bourne's book. So yes, we now come to Cornelis Drebbel, generally seen as the father of all submersibles and submarines. He laid down the groundwork for submarine basics, the general concepts of which are still in use today. Cornelis Drebbel was born in 1572 in the town of Alkmaar, in the northwest of what is presently known as the Netherlands. Drebbel was born in the midst of the Eighty Years' War, the long and arduous Dutch war for independence from their Spanish masters. Drebbel turned out to be a jack of many trades. He started out as an engraver, but he had many interests, mainly expanding into the field of physics and alchemy. He wrote a book titled On the Nature of the Elements, which was widely distributed in Europe and built an impressive fountain in the town of Middleburg. He started designing and inventing all kinds of things, including the Perpetuum Mobile, which he realized in the shape of a clock that didn't need to be winded and used atmospheric pressure for motion. All this, and a number of other discoveries and designs, and a decent bit of networking, gathered him the attention of the English king James I, who invited Drebbel and his family to come live in Alton Palace in London. James gave Drebbel an annual stipend, and he could use the rooms in the palace to showcase his inventions and designs. Drebbel and his family moved into the lavish royal quarters and were considered members of the court. While there, Drebbel amused the king with all kinds of fun inventions, such as a magic lantern and other works in which he bent light to his will. He allegedly also built a globe that showed the seasons, astrological phenomena, moon phases and ocean tides, apparently again utilizing atmospheric pressure. But there seems to have been a falling out of sorts with the English court. It seems that Drebbel had also designed a hole in his hand, because the Drebbel spent money like rain falls on an English lawn. But like said, Drebbel was a networker par excellence. In 1610, he managed to convince Emperor Rudolf, yes, the holy Roman emperor in Prague, to take him into his court. Drebbel pleased the emperor with new inventions, including a kind of pump that could drain mine shafts of water. Unfortunately for Drebbel, a year after moving to Prague, Emperor Rudolf died. Drebbel was then embroiled in the Thirty Years' War that ravaged the continent, upon which King James took pity on him and hauled him back to England. 
Dribble went on inventing and designing all kinds of peculiar things for James, including a microscope that was ahead of its time. Apparently, Dribble also engineered a kind of air conditioning system, which he called a cooling machine, probably using chemicals that could severely lower the temperature in small rooms during warm summers. Now, you may have noticed that I use words like allegedly and apparently a lot. This is because of another central Dribble character trait. He was notoriously secretive. Possibly afraid that others might copy his inventions, he hardly ever put any of them in writing and stuck to one-offs, which he guarded ferociously. As a result, many of his inventions are mentioned in diaries and books authored by witnesses. One such invention described by others is Dribble Submersible. Again, Dribble left no paper design, so everything the world got to know was what was written down by observers close to him. We don't know for sure how or when Dribble got the idea to design a submersible. For all we know, he did actually read William Bourne's book, which would not be a surprise, as Dribble is known to have read anything he could get his hands on. And he was in London, and he had access to the Library of the Royal Society, but... This is all speculation. What we do know is that he built three spherical submarines from 1621 to 1624, all of them made of wood and covered in greased leather and using oars for propulsion. Ostensibly, the last submersible was the biggest of the lot and had a crew of 12 rowers, which is quite a feat. For his first submersible, Dribble used a tube protruding from the water for air, but in the subsequent versions he's believed to have discovered a way of creating oxygen by means of a chemical process. Explanations on how this worked vary. Some sources quote saltpeter as the main ingredient. Others offer that he used hydrogen peroxide. Unfortunately, this process too was kept most secret by Dribble. Much later, it was discovered that heating saltpeter releases oxygen, but unfortunately, it also releases quite poisonous gases. However this worked, it seems to have worked. According to substantiated accounts, corroborated by various witnesses, double submarines were able to stay submerged for over three hours with a maximum of four and a half meters or 15 feet and holding himself, 12 horsemen and guests aboard. Dribble even managed to persuade His Royal Highness to get on board for a submerged trip along the Thames River. The submersibles had glass portholes allowing people to look at the fish outside. Navigation was done by means of a compass. As to how Dribble managed buoyancy, well, that too is shrouded in mist, thanks to his secrecy again. Some reports state that he had bellows installed underneath the seats of his rowers. The bellows were ostensibly connected to the water through the hull by means of tubes. The bellows will be emptied of air by sitting on them, creating a vacuum that will be filled by water. Then, by sitting down again on the bellows, the water will be squeezed out of the bellows and somehow the tubes then closed off on the water end and filled with air from the other tubes inside the submarine. Throughout the ages, though, engineers have tried to reenact this to no avail. What survived, though, is that Dribble designed and constructed three submersibles that were able to stay submerged for quite a length of time, and that even the English king went along for a ride and survived. The English king, being a clearly very important person, meant that his antics and Dribble's submarine were widely recorded and distributed, thanks to reports and writings filed by scientists working for the Royal Society of London. His renown forever established Dribble as having constructed the world's first working submersible. Unfortunately for Dribble, King James then died a year after his submerged trip. 
A plan to further his submarine designs for the burgeoning Royal Navy was binned by James' successor, Charles I, who ordered Drebbel to focus on designing new methods of attacking enemy ships. Drebbel constructed modern fire ships and was party to a failed attempt to help French Huguenots in a mission at the French port city of La Rochelle on the southwestern coast of France. Under Charles I, Drebbel slowly but surely fell out of grace at the court and money fell out with him. And so did his wife, who is said to have had a number of adulterous affairs, which somehow also cost Drebbel dearly financially. Drebbel bought a pub in England in 1629 and died in 1633 at the age of 61. The city of Alkmaar is to this day pretty proud of their inventor. Some years ago, a copy of one of Drebbel's wooden submarines was built and placed in the town center. You can still visit it today. Several years after Drebbel built his famous submersibles, French priest, natural philosopher, and mathematician Marin Mersen solved the theoretical challenge of submerging a hollow object without it collapsing under increasing water pressure. He worked out that a cylindrical hull made of copper would offer the best protection against pressure, which increases with half a pound per square inch per foot submerged. All this laid down the very groundwork for allowing submersibles to dive deeper than before, and so provided a new, important piece of the puzzle. Unfortunately, as we shall see, not all future submersible designers were aware of Mersenne's maxims, and they would pay the price. But Mersenne stuck to paper designs. The first submersible to be built after Drebbel's devices was the Rotterdam Boat, appropriately named after the Dutch city where a French inventor known to history only as De Son built it in 1653. At the time, the United Provinces, currently known as the Netherlands and parts of Belgium as it is known today, was embroiled in the First Anglo-Dutch War, duking it out with the British Navy. The Rotterdam boat was of an outlandish design, even for the time. It looked a bit like a flattened wooden box, going pointy at both ends. For some reason, the design became somewhat of a contemporary art thing. If you Google it, just Google the Rotterdam boat... You'll find painting reproductions and posters plastered in commercial art websites all over the net. I was kind of flabbergasted. Anyway, it was 72 feet or some 22 meters long, and Dassault tried a radical new approach to propulsion, opting to install a kind of clockwork with springs and paddles, which would rotate a paddle wheel. That literally went nowhere, because Dassault had obviously not worked out the physics. The submersible was too heavy for your propulsion system to properly displace water, and so it lay dormant the first time Dissault tried to sail it. His inventors watched Dissault's embarrassment, sighed, turned around, and walked away. But Dissault did add two new pieces to the puzzle. First, an alternative to propulsion by oars, however much of a failure it might have been, and a means of attack. Because the base of the Rotterdam boat was a long, solid metal beam that ran from outside the back end of the sub, through the sub, and exited at the other end. Dissant theorized that he would use this solid beam to ram holes into the wooden hulls of the Royal Navy. Again, it never led anywhere, but Dissant's idea of a beam as a means for attack would service on and off with later submersibles. And then activity on the submersible's development front drops off, although the English Royal Patent Office does show 14 patents alluding to submersible designs in the period leading up to 1745. But most of these designs never led to vessels actually being built, as inventors lacked funds. 
I'll mention two adventurists. One was a Nathaniel Simons, who hearkened back to the theories espoused by William Bourne. He designed and actually built a submersible that he could shrink and expand to submerge in service. It had no propulsion, it would only go down and up. He tried to finance his boat and further development by offering people to come watch him submerge and then surface again in exchange for money. Unfortunately for Simons, people weren't so much as impressed as they were bored. His submersible would disappear into the water, then the onlookers would stand there for half an hour or three quarters of an hour, and Simons would surface again, only to meet some very angry onlookers who wanted their money back for wasting their time. With no other financiers, Simons abandoned his venture. Another man who tried his luck with submersibles was John Day, a wheelwright in Plymouth. In 1774, he had bought an old sloop, removed its mast and sails, covered it with grease planks, and added to the keel hooks that allowed to tack on weights. His idea was to earn money by having bets placed on him resurfacing. The idea was that he'd be in a submersible as it sank to the bottom, that he'd stay there for 12 hours, and then surfs again, alive. This would be achieved by unhooking the slip from the heavy weights that kept it down. The air captured inside the submersible would lift him to the surface, they believed. The bet was made with a gambler. Day entered his submersible with food, drink, candles, and a hammock, and ordered the moorings cut, upon which the submersible sank like a stone and was never seen again. Analyzing Day's design and looking at the water depth of where Day had his ill-fated adventure, engineers believed that the submersible sank way too deep and collapsed under the fast-increasing pressure per square inch. Day clearly had not read up on his mersenne. Sadly, the only thing Day is known for is that his demise was the first recorded naval accident involving a submersible. And so we now come to that other famous visionary who is, together with Cornelius Drebbel, known as one of the ground layers of future submersibles and submarines. I speak, of course, of David Bushnell of the American state of Connecticut. More even than Drebbel, Bushnell's submersible, which he named the Turtle, would be looked upon by designers and developers as a template for a submarine design for close to 100 years. David Bushnell was born on August 30, 1740, near the town of Saybrook, Connecticut. He was the son of farmers who fell on bad times. His father and two siblings succumbed to illness. David and his brother Ezra inherited the farm, but David had other plans than become a farmer. He sold his part of the farm to Ezra, acquiring enough funds to enroll into Yale College. While there, Bushnell, for reasons unknown, started to wonder how one could create gunpowder mines that would explode underwater. Because, obviously, igniting gunpowder and bringing it to explode requires oxygen, not water. This is the problem Bushnell wanted to solve, and using parts of muskets, he managed his first underwater explosion, steadily expanding the amounts of gunpowder he could make to ignite. Having figured out the underwater mine issue, now Bushnell set his mind upon how to get close to an enemy ship. Throughout history, there had been examples of fire ships used to set enemy ships alight, but these could be avoided. The underwater mine Bushnell made required precision in its delivery. So, Bushnell decided that the best way to achieve this was by means of a submerged vessel that would move underneath an enemy ship and attach the bomb to its wooden hull. Bushnell had been working on a turtle since 1775, so in the first year of the American War of Independence. In 
and it was a work of art in many respects. Thanks to his connections through Yale, his work was brought to the attention of people like Benjamin Franklin, who was believed to have relayed stories about the turtle to George Washington. These connections also provided Bushnell with the means to acquire the necessary funds to pay artisans and instrument makers who built the parts Bushnell designed. Later, in 1787, Bushnell would himself explain why the submersible was called the turtle in a now famous letter to Thomas Jefferson. Quote, the external shape of the submarine vessel bore some resemblance to the two upper tortoise shells of equal size, joined together, the place of entrance into the vessel being represented by the opening made by the swell of the shells at the head of the animal. Unquote. And indeed, the turtle does look like two turtle shells glued to one another. Seen from above, the turtle was elliptical in shape and offered space for one crew member. This one person had to be quite the busybody. He would control a rudder situated to the back of the vessel, just as a screw-like propeller was. To the front was also a propeller, operated by a hand crank. Both propellers would be operated by hand and by treadmill. On top of the turtle was a small conning tower, which Bushnell called the crown. It held two glass portholes on the sides and another small vertical screw-like propeller to speed up the servicing process. In front of the crewmen were also a compass and a prototype death gauge. The instruments also held luminous phosphorus so that the crew member could still read the gauges in darkness while submerged. Below the crewmen's feet was several hundred pounds of lead as ballast, which could be jettisoned in an emergency. Buoyancy was arranged by allowing water into the vessel using a foot pedal, which opened a small hatch that would let in water on the low end of the sub. Expunging water was done by pumping it out using a foot pedal. The turtle's offensive capability lay in a screw next to the brim on the forward side of the conning tower. The screw had Bushnell's mind attached to it. The idea was that the turtle would approach an enemy vessel at night with only the low-profile conning tower sticking out of the water. Then, when near the enemy ship, the turtle would submerge and move underneath the hull, where the operator would drill the screw into the hull. Bushnell's mind had a timer. The turtle would move away from the enemy ship so as to be well safe when the mine went off. We're now in 1776, the midst of Revolutionary War. In August, Bushnell's brother Ezra and a few others were being trained to operate the turtle. The goal was to use the turtle to attack British warships that were engaged in the blockade of New York. Here we go again, a blockade. More specifically, in Hudson Bay. But when Governor's Island in the mouth of the bay was overrun by British forces, the attack was expedited and training cut short. It was supposed to be Ezra Bushnell who would carry out the assault on a British warship, but he fell ill. And so it fell to Ezra Lee gunnery sergeant in the Revolutionary Army, to attack the HMS Eagle, the flagship of Admiral Richard Howe. On the night of September 6, 1776, the turtle was put in the water, and Ezra Lee trudged the small submersible close to the eagle, managing to slip under the eagle undetected. There, underneath a giant warship and in darkness, Lee went to work. He gently raised the turtle, so he got close enough to start working the screw with the mine. But unfortunately for Lee, by that time, British warships had added a new feature that they didn't know about, copper sheathing. 
Copper was added in an attempt to prevent barnacles and weeds and other sea life from attaching itself to the wooden hull, which in time made the ship's sail slower and demanded that the ships be up and dry dock often, which cost a lot of money, but even more importantly, also took ships out of rotation for months on end. But the wood-eating shipworm especially was a constant nuisance that made wooden hulls porous. And so the Royal Navy had turned to sheathing hulls of ships with copper. The enormous demand for copper by the Royal Navy, by the way, had consequences that would reverberate around the globe, but that's a whole new podcast series in itself. But so it was that the copper sheathing brought with it an entirely unexpected side effect, protection against submerged attack. Twice, Ezra Lee tried to puncture the copper sheathing, but to no avail. He had to call it off. Unfortunately for Lee, the turtle, which was now partially surfaced again with the conning tower visible amid sunrise, was seen by the British. They gave chase. Believing the mine impeded his speed, Lee discharged it, and the mine floated to the mouth of the East River, where it caused an enormous explosion sometime later, alerting the British to the possible disaster they had just escaped. The British fleet lifted anchor and bolted for the seas, only to return a short time after. Ezra Lee managed to reach the shore and was brought to safety. Later that same month, Lee tried again, approaching three frigates moored outside Fort Washington. This again resulted in failure due to copper sheathing, and Lee had to again call off the attack. Bushnell took the turtle from the water, had it put on a sloop, and tried to sneak past to return British ships, but he was seen. The frigate opened fire and sank the sloop, taking the turtle with it. Bushnell later managed to retrieve the turtle and brought it back ashore, where he tried to restore it. But, in the meantime, he had fallen ill, and the higher echelons of the revolutionary leadership had lost interest in the project. Bushnell then joined the Continental Army proper and tried to interest it in using floating mines, possibly an idea he got after Ezra Lee floated the turtle's mine after that first failed attempt. In December 1777, Bushnell had small barrels filled with explosives float down the Delaware River, hoping that they would bump up against British warships moored in the harbor of Philadelphia. Unfortunately, most warships had been put up into wars for the winter months, and some barrels only blew up some small civilian boats. The British then turned their shore cannons on the barrels and blew them up, famously calling it the Battle of the Kegs. After this, Bushnell bounced around the Continental Army for some time as part of the sappers and miners, constructing roads and manning artillery batteries. He fought with the likes of Marquis de Lafayette and Alexander Hamilton, and he was discharged from the army in 1783 and moved to obscurity. Literally, he disappeared for some time. Rumors abounded that he had moved to France to try and sell his idea for a submarine there, but this was never confirmed. Later, David Bush popped up in Georgia, where he registered as a doctor and died in 1826 at the ripe old age of 86, which was quite a feat at the time. In his will, David Bush confirmed that he was actually, indeed, David Bushnell. The story of the turtle was largely unknown after 1776 until Thomas Jefferson took an interest in it in 1785. While in France, Jefferson is said to have witnessed propellers, a new invention at the time, and he was reminded of Bushnell's screws on the turtle. Back in the United States, he asked around about whatever happened to Bushnell and the submersible screws and this thing, whatever, that was submerged and stuff. 
Clearly, work reached Bustle because he sent Jefferson a long letter in which he explained the workings of the submersible. This was the letter we talked about earlier in 1787. Jefferson then read Bushnell's letter in its entirety during a speech at the American Philosophical Society, which also published the letter. And this is how the history of Bushnell and the turtle entered the history books. Bushnell's turtle is oftentimes described as a revolution in submarine warfare. That's debatable. Because the idea of attacking enemy ships while submerged clearly wasn't new. We are aware of the stories of divers drilling holes in wooden ships from ancient times, after all. The idea of using water as ballast, well, Drebbel had already done that, and the theory had been out there before him. The turtle, however, combined the best of all ideas into one submersible. It added rudders, the idea of a proper conning tower, screws for propulsion, and, of course, the idea of using a drill to attach a mine to a warship. But above all, what made the turtle special was that it was the first time that it almost successfully sank a warship. It would take almost another 100 years for a warship to be sunk by submersible in battle. And so, with the adventures of David Bushnell during the War of Independence, at the end of the 18th century, we come to the end of this first episode of History of Submarines. And we've covered quite a bit. Remember, we started out in ancient Greek times, the days of Herodotus and Aristotle, from men with reeds who cut loose ships through paper designs of diving bells and the first fantasies and musings about submersibles in which even Leonardo da Vinci dabbled to Cornelius Drebbel and his groundbreaking wooden submersible with greased animal skins and Bushnell's meticulous turtle. Man has always pushed boundaries and gone beyond frontiers in search of the next one. The story of the submarine is not really one of lethal metal hulks that move silently below the surface, although it is also that. But the history of submarines is about that human character trait to make the impossible possible through perseverance and grit, and also folly, adventurism, and pure luck. In the next episode, cut into two parts, The Golden Age of Submersibles, we will dive into the 19th century and, oh, well, why not? We'll move all the way up to the eve of World War I, when we will finally see the submarine come into its own. So, close the hatches and sound the diving alarm, and I will see you on the other side. Mm-hmm.